The following commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to Boston Neighborhood Network, 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02119. To arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241, or you can email radio at bnntv.org. I have a problem every year around MLK Day because Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., for some reason, has been treated as America's civil rights mascot. On this day, you'll have folks who would have never in their life marched with, agreed with, voted with anything he believed in. One of the biggest bigots in the United States Congress, he had the audacity to send out a Dr. King quote. The march has begun every day. We rise like the sun. We fight till the battle is won. Can you hear the footsteps? Listen, cause we're coming like a gang on the street. So you better start running. It's time for some action now. Historical progression. Generations march in succession through 400 years. Hate, blood, sweat, and tears. And counting, the resistance is mounting. Watch your Sharon Hinton, I'm the producer of On Another Level. I have, again, another distinguished guest who's a really good friend of mine. His mom was a good friend of mine. And because, you know, uh, he is so storied and so it's my honor, I'm going to read something off of the City of Boston website because I don't want to forget stuff. But this is in no way is the measure of the man, um, the Honorable Charles Calvin Yancey. That's right. For those of you who saw the C, it's Calvin. He grew up in Roxbury, the sixth of nine children. When he was 12 years old, he wrote a letter to the mayor of Boston requesting a vacant lot across from his home to be turned into a playground. 12 years old. This request was granted and served as his first political success. Charles graduated from Boston Technical High School in 1965. He then received a bachelor's in economics at Tufts University in 1970 and later his master's in public administration at Harvard University in 1991. While at Tufts University, Charles founded the Afro-American Society and the African-American Cultural Center. During, the 19, during 1970, Charles worked with the Urban Finance Division of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston and the UDI Community Development Corporation in Durham, North Carolina. He also co-founded the Community for Human Rights was elected to represent District 4 for the Boston City Council in 1983, advocating on behalf of Mattapan and Dorchester. He maintained that seat till 2015, operating as the council president in 2001, 
and becoming the second black person to hold that position. Charles, the Honorable Charles C. Yancey also served in the National Black Caucus of local elected officials in 1999. Some of his other accomplishments were chair of the Council's Committee of Employment and Workforce Development and Finance Services and Community Investment. And then a lot of us here know the annual Charles C. Yancey Book Fair has provided over 100,000 free books for Boston children since 1987. He was also one of the main advocates and supporters of the Free South Africa Movement. He established a sister city relationship between Boston and Sekonde Tekarati in Ghana, West Africa. So join me in thanking. <laughs> and that's like scratching the surface because I know so much more about you. Um, thank you. Well, thank you for having for me. For being I'm, here. And I'm sitting here and I'm listening to these <laughs> dates. It's like 19 what? 19 what? Yeah, well, <clears throat> my wife would be a little uh, upset with my staff if I didn't make just one minor correction. Okay. Um, we actually distributed more than 700,000 books. 700,000. But it was over a 30-year period of time. But it's such a thrill to be here. And uh, it's nice of you to give me a call and invite me to sit across I'm the table I'm always checking on you, right? <laughs> And the last time, and we talked um, briefly over the weekend about how we're losing so many people. Yes. And I think about you, I think about, you know, Gene McGuire and Sarah Ann Shaw. That's, that's your crew. That's we're your tribe that was we're, running we're, with. We're still here. And I want to uh, just tell you how grateful I am for the support that I received over those many decades from two individuals you mentioned, as well as so many others. We just said goodbye to Mel King. Uh, John D. O'Brien was my guidance counselor and mentor Ooh, at geez. Boston Technical High School, oh my God. which now bears his name. Um, and it was a, uh, a very appropriate honor uh, for him and his family. Uh, he, many people don't know, but John D. O'Brien, working with Mal King and many other community leaders, founded the Black Political Task Force in the late 1970s. And John asked if I would be willing to serve as president of that organization. Uh, I, and I agreed in 1982. Uh, and we had a great political organization in place. We covered more than 82 precincts wow. in the predominantly uh, African-American uh, areas of the city of Boston. And we carried each of the candidates that we endorsed. I got a throwback for time. you. I found, <laughs> I found a videotape. Um, I found a videotape of you that's nine years old. Really? Talking about one of the topics we're going to talk about tonight, okay. the elected versus appointed school yes. committee. Yes. So if I can ask my director to roll that tape, because we will be talking to you about that. Nine years ago, that's before I... Ah, <laughs> look like Frederick Douglass again. <laughs> I've been on the city council for 30 years. And prior to that, I was active in politics. I was active in government at the state level as well as uh, local level. And I've had the opportunity to evaluate the effectiveness of the elected school committee versus the appointed school committee. And quite frankly, uh, over the last 20 years, you can't say we've had astounding success in terms of the academic achievement of the Boston public school system. At best, it's remained the same, but some can argue that it may have even gotten worse in some areas because as a member of the Boston City Council in the early uh, 80s and 90s, you could not have a hearing on the school department's budget without having members of the elected school committee testifying and advocating for resources for the Boston public school system. Since we have the appointed 
school committee. Yes, we hear from the superintendent and his or her staff, but the school committee itself is all but invisible. They're not advocating. Why should a city council be the one to say that we should implement Tom Menino's Blue Ribbon Commission report, which called for the construction of two new high schools? Why, should, why, why don't we hear from at least one member of the appointed school committee asking the question, how can we in good conscience send our high school students to the basement of the YWCA for their education in the 21st century, in 2013? No, I think that because the school committee is appointed by the mayor, uh, they've become little more than a rubber stamp, and they no longer serve as strong advocates for our children unless it's approved by the mayor. That has to change. So yes, you, can, you guessed it. I believe we should have an elected school committee like every one of the 350 cities and towns in Massachusetts. What's, what, what is it about the, the intelligence of the Boston voters that we cannot discern who would make a good school committee member and who would not? That privilege is allowed to every other voter in Massachusetts except if you happen to live in the city of Boston. And you were running for mayor at the time. Actually, it was close to 10 years. Close to 10 years now. <laughs> yes, Lord. I, I, you know, well, did I leave any doubt in terms of where I stood on the no, issue you didn't. of an appointed versus an elected school committee? No, you didn't. And, 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 and so we're still dealing with that situation yeah. now. So when you and I talked, a couple of things, and I don't know if we're going to run out of time or whatever, but we wanted, I wanted to talk to you about this current situation with the elected versus appointed. At that time, you were running for mayor. And um, you were running for mayor and city council at the same time. I remember yes. that. So that was pretty historic, too, because most people didn't figure out they could do that, but you did. That's right. And then um, the other thing is the current state of leadership for black people. And I'm saying that specifically black and African-American and not black indigenous people of color, because that's a whole nother, um, that's a whole nother piece, right? And then the other piece is where do you think we need to go from here? Because we are losing a lot of key people and a lot of this stuff, I mean, Chain of Change, um, you know, with Mel King. Do you have a book? Are you oh, working yes. on a book? Oh, yes. And your book is? Oh, well, I can't disclose that right now. But, but I'm, you are I'm, working uh, on a yes, book. I yes, I am. And so yes, am. that's one thing, but I know there's no way. You have an encyclopedia of experiences, right? And so from A to Z, you could write several books. And I'm glad to hear that you're writing a book. But then when I think about people, you know, the African proverb is when you lose an elder, you lose a library. And so uh, thank you for being here. And uh, I'm looking at the picture from you back then and you <laughs> now, and it's like, you didn't change that much. I mean, your hair's grown longer, but you kind of still look the same. Well, I've been trying to disguise my appearance, Don't but, but it's, it's not working? It's no, not it's working. not working. No, no, no. Well, let me, let me first of all, um, thank you, Sharon Hinton, for, uh, for allowing me to... Say hello to my family who may be watching right now. I hope so. Especially my wife and my granddaughter, Malia, grandson, Reese. Hello, this is Grandpa. <laughs> now I'm done for the day. Now can okay. I be? <laughs> but we have a lot of work to do <clears throat> in Boston, uh, for better or for worse, is in a very pivotal position in the, in the national psyche. I can't explain why. But there's something about uh, maybe the struggle. 
Well, it's because we've been the first in a lot of stuff, the first yeah. public school, first police department. And in 1638, uh, African-Americans were introduced to the city of Boston, and we've been struggling ever since. I know. Many success stories, however. Uh, not and, enough. And one, <laughs> that's true, not enough. But you think about, uh, even in the uh, cultural area, if you think about Phyllis Wheatley, uh, and her artistry in the uh, late 1700s. And then uh, you think about what happened on March 5th, 1770. Who was the first person to die for the liberation Christmas. of this country? Addicts. Christmas addicts. Uh, and then you can go, you know, uh, many years later after the so-called revolution, and, and, and you still find uh, human beings owning other human beings. But people in this city spoke up against this. Uh, but also, David, David, there were still advertisements on slave catching, too. So That's right. That's right. I was going to mention uh, David Walker, his David great, Walker. Uh, great appeal, calling upon uh, enslaved people to rise up against their oppressor and those who were free. And there were some free black folks right here in the city of Boston, including David Walker, uh, should also accept the responsibility of leadership to rid this nation of the scourge of uh, slavery. The abolition movement, and then you had Martin Luther King lived here, Malcolm X came through That's here, right. Colin Powell came through here. Everybody came, a lot, of, pretty much everybody came through here. Well, would there have been a Barack Obama if he, he did not no. give that electrifying speech here. at the Democratic Convention in 2004? That's right. That's right. Not to mention his years at Harvard uh, receiving his law degree. So there's something about this city, something in the air, the water that says that we cannot stay on the sidelines. We have to fight uh, for the liberation of our people and know that that's your responsibility. Okay, well, hold up. Yes, but the last election, over 99,000 people voted for an elected school committee versus an appointed school committee. And that was a mandate. Even though it was a non-binding referendum, yes. that was voters saying, we're not standing up for it. We want to go back. And as you said in your piece that was almost 10 years ago, this is the only place, and it's the capital city of Massachusetts, that doesn't have an elected school committee. Like, why can't we get there? And, and, and I had said to you at uh, Mel King's um, wake, I'd saw, I saw former Mayor Flynn, and I asked yes. him, I said, you're the one that got this thing rolling. Right. What do you think now? I mean, you did it, and then you three months later sent a memo, email, saying that you think that you made a mistake and it should go back and it should be reviewed periodically, um, but it's still there. And so we have a mayor who's a woman of color who has ignored that mandate. She basically is, is, is negotiating with Desi. She is negotiating, she, she is appointing uh, the superintendent, the school committee still, and we're still in this situation. So, so how do we get from, how do we get to where you saw this where everybody else has said we should be from where we are now. Well, it's interesting that you found that tape. I had totally <laughs> forgotten about it. <laughs> and I can tell you that Charles Yancey speaks for Charles Yancey. He did a great job. Um, ten years ago, can you imagine that? But, you know, I would have said the same thing uh, ten years prior to that. Um, we, the whole uh, campaign to uh, de- democratized uh, the school committee began in the early 1990s. But that and was when black people actually had power. 
And we're starting to get power in the school committee. That's exactly right. Uh, John D. O'Brien, who I mentioned a little while ago, was president of the school committee at the time. And by 1992, we lost John D. O'Brien and an elected school committee. That would, would have been his last year serving as a member of that elected school committee. So it begs the question, have things improved in the Boston Public Schools since then? I mean, that, I, I raised that rhetorical question in that piece you ran for, 19, or for 2013. Uh, but we fought very hard against the proposal uh, to remove the voters from the process of selecting and electing uh, school committee members. Because we knew that to concentrate that power in the mayor's office. In one person. In one person who works through uh, an appointed uh, school committee to decide educational policy. That's, that's a great burden to bear. And we knew that Ray Flynn was pressured by the business community. Uh, and some of the religious community. And, and the religious community. Many African Americans in the religious community joined him under his leadership. It wasn't the, that our community led the fight to get rid of an elected school committee. I mean, the whole process of election and voting is almost sacrosanct. People fought and, and died for right. the right to vote. Uh, and I tell you, uh, my mother, Alice Yancey, used to take me to the polls every election, long before I was eligible to vote. I remember your mom. And she Beautiful. worked, she worked at, at a, as a warden. She uh, established more than a dozen community organizations, uh, you know, ranging from the 7th Street Cleanup Program to the Women's Improvement League. Mm -hmm. uh, she served on the board of the Roxbury Multi-Service Center. She was with ABCD, Model Cities, you name it. She got involved. I don't know how. I met she her. was able to I do met that. you through her because she and I were working at Court Street yes. in the school department. How could that have happened when she was raising, along with my dad, my dad helped out a lot now, don't get me wrong, but nine children. And when she passed, she had more than 37 grants. Wow. Uh, and she was still fighting. She still wanted to make sure that our community had a strong voice so and that we were happened? respected. Because, you know, when I think about it, and I'm looking at you, right, and so I remember, uh, we don't look like what we've been through, Charles, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, you know, the demonstrations on Carson Beach. I remember yes. the marching. I, I'm old enough to remember marching with Martin Luther King yes. as a child yeah. when he had the mass, you know, the massive march. I mean, the, the turnpike is there now, but I remember marching and ending up at what was then the music hall and he was talking way too long. We just lost Harry Belafonte, but I remember yes. not, I remember Martin Luther King taking too long talking and me waiting for Harry Belafonte to sing. <laughs> and I remember asking my mother, it's like, why is he still talking, mommy? And she was like, he's a preacher, baby. I said, but why is he still talking? So I didn't appreciate it from a child's mind, yes. even though I grew up in that atmosphere now too. that's the tape you should have played. So. Oh, <laughs> no, we already we got him. But so when we look at the generations, of struggle and the yes. generations of sacrifice. And you say, you know, have we made progress? Well, in one way we have, but if you look at the reports of um, this recent controversy with the grades in the admission schools yes. and how that's been, you know, it, it gave me um, flashbacks of when I remember working at Court Street when Roar 
the South Boston we had infiltrated our alienated rights, one had, of the most racist organizations in the city. And it had infiltrated the school department. And I was working in the information yes. center, which was responsible for letting parents know where the assignments and literally I remember people giving out false information trying to sabotage. Yes. And I remember that. And so and there were very few of us then. And I remember um, going from Boston Public Schools, um, the Henry L. Higgins and the David Ellis and all these schools, and going to Beaver Country Day School. And so recently, I'm still I'm working now with students um, and with the administration and, and the educators at Beaver Country Day School to establish an endowment fund in my father's name, yes. Carnell Eaton. But that's something I'm doing for the generation before yes. that hopefully will get carried forward. So there are people that are out there working that I see, but the groundswell of protests and the groundswell that moves non-binding referendums or binding referendums, yes. I don't feel that. Right. I mean, I see people at the school committee, God bless all the parents and the teachers and educators and students that go up there, you know, at the school committee and testifying to say, this is not right, fix this, fix that. You know, the controversy, the sexual allegations at Mission Hill, so it's still happening, and then when you look at um, the resegregation of the schools and who's literally in the schools as students versus who's there as teachers, we're still kind of dealing with the same thing, although the initial um, issue of the property taxes not being paid towards education, which sparked desegregation, it came down to property taxes and taxation, which is taxation without representation, which is, you know, the whole Tea Party and the whole thing, right? So we're still in the belly of the beast at a place that historically has had firsts that looked like they were changed, but some things changed and some things stayed the same. So when, when I'm, you know, obviously you think the school committee should still be elected, and what you said in that piece still stands true. You still have one person, it's a daunting task, no matter yes. if you're the smartest bulb or you're the sharpest knife in the drawer, it's still one person that has all of this stuff to juggle. What is your advice if you wanted to give it? to Mayor Wu in terms of how, because she's the youngest mayor, I think, also. I think so. Well, first of all, um, the mayor of Boston has a very difficult job. Right. Every mayor but you wanted to, to be mayor. also had a difficult job. And if I was elected 10 years ago, it would, it would be a daunting task for me as well. Uh, even though during that election, I have to point out, I have more experience than any of my opponents. That's right. <laughs> you were the sharpest knife in the drawer. <laughs> but there were some other issues too, you know, in terms of fundraising, et cetera. But, uh, but uh, to answer your question directly, uh, we have an opportunity with this new mayor uh, to do things a little differently. And she has a wonderful opportunity uh, to say, yes, I trust the voters of Boston. Yes, I believe uh, we should have even more advocates for, the, for public education in the city of Boston. Yes, we should uh, do as my mother did, and that is to encourage parents to become real partners in the educational process. You know, I got a law passed in 1994. It's called the Parental School Leave Ordinance, which says that parents in the city of Boston can take up with three days a year off of work to attend uh, their children's school. So they have either to get paid? for, uh, well, if they're at the city, no, they don't, we can't force private, private. Uh, folks to, to pay them. And before I left, I filed yet another amendment which would require city employees at least to get paid for time that they take off to visit their schools 
their children's school during school hours. It could be an athletic event, it could be a parent-teacher conference. But it was Alice Yancey who inspired me because I never knew when my mother was going to walk into uh, the Philip Brooks Elementary School or the Patrick T. Campbell Junior High School. Patrick the, T. Uh, Formerly <laughs> Patrick T. Campbell is now, now Martin, Martin the MLK, King. the King School. That's right. And now our Boston Technical High, which is now uh, John D. O'Brien's uh, School of, of Mathematics and Science. But it was Alice Yancey who inspired me because she managed to work two or three jobs and still had time to see how her son Charles and the other eight children were doing in the Boston Public Schools. Well, all parents should have that opportunity. All parents should be supported and encouraged to get more actively engaged in their children's education. Hold on two seconds. I think we have a phone caller. Do we have a phone caller? Yes? Can we get the phone caller? <laughs> Hi, uh, what's your name and where are you calling from in your comment or your question, please, for Honorable City Councilor and former City Council, former Mayor candidate Charles Yancey. Can you say your name and where are you calling from? My name is Anthony, I'm calling from Wasbury. And I just wanted to make a comment, and my comment goes like this. For both the single parents, I'm sorry, for single parents and parents, education is very important. However, when the single parent or parent don't have the education that they need, mostly a lot, then they always lean towards the Baltimore school system or any school system in general. Now, I have a problem when it comes to the Baltimore school system because last time I checked, it became a babysitter's club. I don't care what anybody says because the black teachers aren't correctly being educated to to help black and brown kids to become successful later on for future generations. Now, we can talk whether it's deliberate, knowing the, knowing the history of the Baltimore school system, or they just did it for a paycheck. And don't get me wrong, they're all good black teachers that do care about their jobs and the kids that they're teaching. Huh? Second, with the budget of 1.4, that's one quarter people, but those that don't know no matter, that the city that is in the budget, that's bigger than a small country's GDP. So money isn't an issue or a problem. But with the politicians, the city councils and the mayor, they like to say it is. And then if you don't do your homework and see where that money is going, because last time I checked, that's taxpayers' dollars and federal, pay, and federal tax dollars as well, because the Department of Education pumps some of that money in the bulk of the school system, that the parents and single parents are always going to be dumb, deaf, and blind mm -hmm. in how the city wanting the bulk of the schools. Because last time I checked, we as taxpayers, or these elected officials bosses. But we have, as parents, has got to stop, again, this is a grown-up thing, has got to stop making excuses about this change to education. You're a grown adult, take responsibility, own up to it, and focus on your kid's future. Because if you don't, then, like those saying goes, you're schooled. Sorry to say, but that's why I feel. Okay, thank you so much. It was a lot. Very familiar voice. Is that Dika? Let me say Anthony. I don't oh, know. Oh, Anthony. Okay. Well, first of all, 
<coughs> we should never underestimate uh, the power of parents mm. and their dedication uh, to their children and their children's education. In spite of what education the parents themselves may have re received, the vast majority of parents in our community uh, believe in education and they want the best for their children and they're willing to fight for it. Uh, sometimes what's missing, the missing ingredient uh, may be leadership and perhaps the caller uh, could get more engaged with some of the parents and, and go to the school committee meetings or go to the city council meetings since the city council uh, now is playing an outsized role with regards to education in Boston since we do not have an elected school committee. Uh, that's, that's a very important issue. But the city we council actually voted for the home rule petition for the school committee to be elected and the mayor didn't you sign off on it. Well, the city council has significant power, perhaps more power than it realizes. Because the mayor cannot spend one penny without the approval of the city council. Uh, but the council has to come together. Right. I can think of only one time when we uh, moved to defund uh, a department of city government, uh, and that's when I was president of the city council. We uh, actually shut down one department. It happened to be the law department, just to get the mayor's attention. Uh, you don't necessarily need a two-by-four to slam the mayor in the head. We don't want that a to happen. Could work. But, but the point was, that the city council, as the legislative branch of city government, has more authority than it chooses to use. Now, uh, during my entire tenure on the city council, uh, certainly the, the majority of the council was never people of color. It is today, uh, if uh, people of color and women, uh, but you need strong leadership and activism, not just on the city council level, but also in the community level. We have people uh, like Chuck Turner, who long before he was elected to the city council, had a voice in the city because he was a strong organizer. Mal King had a voice in the city even after he left office in 1982 to, uh, to prepare for his race for mayor in 1983. But even long after Mal uh, left office, he was a force. He was still an organizer. He still had influence on what was going on in the city. And your caller uh, is in the position mm. to organize folks and to uh, bring them down to the city council to complain about what they're doing or to the mayor's office uh, if he believes that his voice is not being heard. Mm. Uh, one of the sad things that happens in our city, and this is not unique to Boston, but far too many people <clears throat> take the right to vote for granted. Mm. You know, people fought and died for that right. When the people in South Africa were challenging the apartheid regime, all they wanted was one person, one vote. And once they got that vote, they mobilized and they challenged government. Uh, and it's not perfect, but at least they have but a voice. But the times were different. And speaking of time, we got to take a break. Oh. And so here's the thing okay. that I want. Here's, I know, right? It goes by so quickly. Um, It'll come back to you. No, no, no. Okay. I, this is so many questions in my mind. So when we come back, because uh, we talked about it at the beginning of the hour, what do we need to do? Now, you're talking about organizing, and that's true. The times are different, yes. and that's true. 
but how do you see, and I, I sort of dropped it, like if you were the mayor, what would you do? Because you tried for yes. the mayor. Yes. You were on the city council with over 30 years, right? 32. There you go. So you've got, some, you've got some skin in the game. You've had skin in the game. Your mama put you in there. And then you've seen it. And so you're one of the people that have actually written some blueprints to, to, to look at. Like there are people in, in before you and you around the same time that were saying, this is how you do it. And each one of you, you know, you make mistakes and then you learn. Yes. And so how do we get that information transferred to the next generations who may want to be able to do that? Um, my name is Sharon Hinton. We're here with the Honorable Charles C. Calvin Yancey. And we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere and try to go get a sandwich or something like that because I've got another piece of information that is really, really key and will bring hopefully your consciousness to another level. We'll be right back. Interested in becoming a radio DJ? Boston Neighborhood Network's 102.9 FM is offering a course of radio production that can get you started. For more information, please head over to bnnmedia.org backslash services backslash workshop. That, that made a difference, perhaps may have given up their lives just so that some of us even have a right to sit in a classroom. And the way that people have contributed to this country absolutely needs to be part of our, our whole country's narrative. When I used to feel challenged, I would just think about my ancestors. And I said, my goodness, if they could make these accomplishments with all of the challenges that they endured, Certainly, whatever I'm experiencing is nothing in comparison. We stand on the shoulders and we walk in the shoes of those that came before us. I am the great-great-great-grandson of Frederick Douglass, and I'm also the great-great-grandson of Booker T. Washington. Even with all of those greats, I can say that I stand one person away from history, and I stand one person away from slavery. Ida B. Wells is my great-grandmother. She decided to use her voice as a journalist in order to expose these atrocities that were happening to the Black community um, during Reconstruction and afterwards. I am uh, the third daughter of six of Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz. My father provided uh, the biggest critique of America with his insistence that America live up to her promise of liberty and justice for all. I was so young when he was assassinated. You know, I remember really vividly his smile. You know, Frederick Douglass at the age of 20 made the decision that he was gonna step on a train and ride away from slavery. That was a decision that he was making for himself, but it was also a decision that he was making for his descendants, for me. Our ancestors, did not have opportunities to live out some of their dreams. And so they put their dreams into their children and their grandchildren. I believe that we're all still fighting the same fight that, that my ancestors fought. Unfortunately, there's still so much work to be done. In 2005, when I read a National Geographic magazine, and the cover story was 21st century slaves. And it was about human trafficking and modern day slavery existing all over the world in every country, including right here in the United States. I understood that I had this platform that my ancestors had built through struggle and through sacrifice. And perhaps we could leverage the historical significance of my ancestry to do something about this issue. People were like, oh my God, you're Malcolm X's daughter. And it was overwhelming. 
And I remember my elder sister saying, you don't have to pass a test to be Malcolm's daughter, you already are. You know, so when I think of my father as just a young man, he did this work out of the goodness of his heart. And this false image that was made of him was so inaccurate. And, 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 and it is the reason why I set out to, to do my books. What drives me is the, I feel a strong need for this country to recognize the contributions of women and the contributions of people of color to this country in the positive ways. I mean, it, we, our stories are very undertold. I think it's important for people to know the past in order to have an understanding of the present and the future. I don't believe that we can start to have conversations about healing and reconciliation until we have conversations about truth-telling, what really happened in this country. The omission of Black, Indigenous, Brown, Asian, and Latin history is not accidental. These kinds of exclusions distance people from their own heritage and ultimately their own sense of self. It is now our opportunity to address these injustices, these systemic injustices. My father said it would be this young generation who would recognize that those in power have misused it and demand change and, and that they would be willing to roll up their sleeves and do the necessary work to ensure you know, this change. What I've seen in the past year leaves me hopeful because I saw people of all races and all ages out there protesting all over this country and around the world for Black Lives Matter. We did the best we could with what we had to work with. Um, we took advantage of um, opportunities that were available during our lifetime and tried to make the world a better place so that the next generation could have even more opportunity and freedom, justice, and equality. When we look back at all uh, the great people that came before us, I don't believe that they were thinking about having their names on buildings or their likenesses on statues. They just rolled up their sleeves and just did the work that needed to be done. So thank you, ABC News, for allowing us to use that clip. You just rolled up your sleeves and did the work that, that had to be done. I mean, so Ilyasa Shabazz was at Bunker Hill a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so Bunker Hill has done a really good job of having a speaker series. Um, and it was a, a couple of months ago where uh, one of Martin Luther King's uh, daughters was also there. Yes. I had the pleasure of meeting their oldest uh, years ago when um, Yolanda King and um, Adela Shabazz actually did a play together and they needed yes. someone to open up. So years ago at the Strand Theater, I got to meet them. Throughout my lifetime, I've got to meet amazing people that look like they stepped off the poster. Because that was also my generation yes. too, right? Yes. So Stokely Carmichael slash Kwame Ture, yes. I met in DC. Yes. And when I talked to him, I said, you know, what do black people need to do? And he said, organize. Yes. I'm an organizational animal. I formed five organizations, three of them tried to kill me, yes. but we still need to organize. And so what do you tell your grandchildren so that your legacy continues and so this work continues and so that we do the best that we have where we are with the time that we have. Wow. Well, <clears throat> my wife Marzell and I are blessed with eight grandchildren, last count. <laughs> um, 
so and I take that responsibility very seriously. But before getting to that, I just wanted to just note another coincidence. Um, I had the opportunity of introducing Betty Shabazz to an audience at Bucket Hill Community College wow. in 1995, I believe it was. But before going on stage, I informed uh, Betty Shabazz that this is where Malcolm spent part of his life. Right. It was the site of the Charlestown State Prison That's is right. now the Bunker, Bunker Hill Young. Community College. That's right. That's and she was right. shocked. She had no idea. So now, next generation, your daughter was there and you introduced her. So what a coincidence. Um, but we do have to lead by example. But see, this uh, not, I'm wondering, do you think this, I, I personally don't think this information is really being passed down. And when it is, because the circumstances are different, um, I think our young people, and I'm not cracking on y'all, I love y'all, are taking it for granted yes. of what they have. Yes. And don't understand the sacrifice of what it took. I remember having to fight my way across Columbia Road because yes. trying to go to the Strand Theater, we had to fight. Yes. Um, I remember trying to go downtown and people not wanting to open up the doors for us. But at that time, we had Blue Hill Avenue, we had Dudley. So we didn't really have to go that far to get what we wanted. But if you look at what's happening now, you know, housing is taking over places where I remember there were businesses for people in the community. That's right. And you need both. That's right. And so you tried to get a high school in Mattapan. There is one particular high school that claims they're in Mattapan. They are not in Mattapan. That's they're right. in American Legion Highway. That's, That's Dorchester. Right. Stop playing. Stop lying. And that is not a part of the Boston public school system. That's it's right. A it's a charter school. school. And my point was that the students in the Boston public school system deserves first-class facilities from kindergarten to, to but high school. But 60% of the buildings were, born, were, were built around World War II. And we had the uh, ability, and we still have the ability, to produce these first-class facilities for our children. Uh, it's, it, and we obviously have the money. Uh, we would have saved money if we would have built the high school that I proposed and fought for for 20 years. Uh, and getting to your point about housing, on um, the Boston State Hospital site, basically 200 acres of land um, was available to build decent high schools as well as uh, decent housing. But right now, I think that we have almost an overabundance of housing units on that site, and we still don't have a high school, a new high school for the children in Mattapan, for the children from all over the city to come and enjoy, because we had that acreage. We had 20 acres of land that was set aside uh, by the state, the state property, working with Shirley Owens Hicks, uh, state representative and state senator Diane Wilkerson, they carved out 20 acres of land. <clears throat> All we needed was one mayor to say yes, and we would have built it. I had a loan order passed on the city council level, but the mayor of Boston has uh, absolute authority when it comes to making contracts. Mm. Uh, so uh, there's only two areas where the city council cannot override the mayor. One it has to do with loan authorizations or loan orders uh, because that's a form of a contract and the other has to do with uh, home rule petitions. So if the mayor doesn't sign the bill it never gets to the state house. Which is what happened when it came down for the home rule petition that was sponsored by Ricardo Arroyo, city council Ricardo Arroyo and Julie Mejia, who's the head of the education committee, yes. and yes. the mayor just 
She deaded it. She didn't sign that's, it. That's right. That's right. So political pressure has to be brought to bear uh, to make sure that all of our elected officials on the city council level and the mayor is responding. Uh, each of them uh, have to respond to the will of the people. So that gets back to organization. So you, you have uh, a different group of elected officials in the office, in mm. the mayor's office and on the city council level. And I prefer to give people the benefit of the doubt. I said, you, you have this authority, you have this responsibility, use it, not just for today's generation, but for future generations. So let's get back to the generations, because you have two. You have your, you have your children, then your children's children. Yes. And, and now, you, you know, I don't know what they, did they call you grandpa? They call you papa? What do they call you? Both. Okay. <laughs> Depends on which one. You so talk. I remember, just like your mom, you watched your mother's example and your father's example, and yes. then you, you did so, right? And yes. then now people have been watching you, some that are actually blood relatives and some that are spiritual relatives. I've been watching you forever. Like I said, I met you through your mom. Yes. And I said, whenever he runs for office, I'm voting for him. <laughs> Because I like you and we work for you. And if you had, if, if he's like your I, son, and then I would see you come and take care of your mom. I was like, so I saw you on a personal that. level. And then it was like, that. oh, I got to support him because I you. see him. Thank you. And so, and Boston is a big town. Yes. Like, you know somebody and know somebody, right? The last election, I believe, only barely 30% of people came out to vote. The year I lost in 2015, only 11% of the folks voted, which meant 89% of the people stayed home. I don't know why they stayed home. I don't know if it was because they took a lot for granted. Uh, but those who did come out were heavily influenced by outside money. interests and money. And that's, a, you know, I'm not complaining about it. I mean, that's all's fair in love and war, I guess. No, it isn't. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it isn't. But, but uh, you know, that's how the political game is played, and I understand all that. But the point is, that we cannot afford to stay home on election day, on any election day. this is an election day. year too. Every year council. is an election year, either at the state level or the city level. And every four years is at the national level. And shame on you if you uh, stay home or, or become complacent when we have all these challenges. And we have more resources today than our parents and grandparents had. But we don't have the same perspective. That's true. And we don't have the same mentality. Yes. To me, there was a generation that was willing to sacrifice for the group. Yes. Now you've got people that don't want to sacrifice anything and they only want it for themselves. Yes. And that's not just black people, that's like that's society right. and especially young people. They, right. you know, there's this fake kind of keyboard activism. Um, and some of it has been effective, but it doesn't have the same level of accountability. Um, to me. And I've seen the, the, the teachers and the parents and students testifying, but then I see them drop off because they're like, well, nothing's changed, so what are we supposed to do? Am I still supposed to vote for these people? I don't want to run for office. I don't have time to do that. And then coming out of the pandemic, you know, three years was a long time yes. for people to be that isolated. There were generations that were born that still have not been socialized into society because they were isolated. That's, that's, so, that's very true. That's so very true. where do we go now? How do we take what we have to another level, understanding the challenges. Um. Well, a lot of it has to do with education and, and leadership. Um, you know, those three years that we lost during the pandemic, uh, we're never going to get back. Uh, but we are here now. Uh, I, I teach at uh, Suffolk University these days. You know days. I was going to ask you, what are you doing now? <laughs> Even the crew said to me, is he running for office again? What's he doing now? I said, well, watch the show, and uh, that's what no, we're going to find no, out. Let me make an announcement. 
I am not running for office. Okay? Ever again? Or I'm, just right now? <laughs> I'm not running for office right now. Okay, okay. Um, I don't anticipate that I will be running, uh, but I, I want to support uh, young people and I want to support those who have demonstrated commitment, not just rhetorically, but people who have actually done some things to, uh, to move the struggle forward, uh, done something to help educate our children, uh, to make sure that our community get a fair share of the resources. That's why I say uh, the elected officials at the national, state, and local level has a wonderful opportunity to change the script, to, to, to uh, fight against the historic inequities and the disparities. Okay. They have the power. The question is, do they have the will to use that power in a positive ma manner and not perpetuate the self-serving nature of politics? It's self-defeatist. Uh, but I have to say, out of all the politicians, black and people of color, when Domingo Starosa ran for office at Large City Council, you were the only elected official that publicly came out and endorsed him. Well, he's a good man. He, he, would, he would have provided the type of leadership that we needed. And he demonstrates that, all the, even today, even though he's not an elected official, he's still out supporting our young people. And that's what I really respected about him. You know, I think that we look for easy solutions. We mm. don't want to do the work. Uh, but you have people uh, like Domingos, uh, Rosa, who is willing to, to set an example, if nothing else. And one of the things I liked about him is that he was willing to invest in our young people. You know, I have nothing against the police officers or police department, but I don't think we should become overly dependent upon police department to protect our community. We have to uh, develop an ethos in, in our community of self-respect and self-determination. Yes, we need the police, but we should be investing in youth programs and education. Should we have police in the school? I believe that uh, we should have more parents in the schools. Mm. That's, what I, that's what my proposal was all about, is more mm. parents in the schools. I don't want our school rooms to feel like prisons. Militarized, uh, yeah. And I, I understand the need for public safety, and, and we should take whatever steps necessary to protect all of our children all of the time, in school and out of school. I don't think uh, simply by putting police officers in schools, you're necessarily going to increase the level of public safety. You, you may, on the, on the margins, you know, people want to have um, metal detectors. Well, we have metal detectors. I've worked in schools like ev that, and it everywhere. changes the atmosphere. It really and does. And I want our children to know that they're loved, that they're respected, and encourage them to achieve uh, their potential. Our children are brilliant. Our community is, almost has an embarrassment of riches when it mm. comes to all the talent, talented people like you, who uh, set a great example for others. Who tried to get in the school committee four times, and they did illegal and underhanded stuff to keep me out of it. Right, and if you would have run, if we had an elected school committee and you have run, you probably would have had a better opportunity to get in there and shake things up. And people are saying that to me now. <laughs> so when we get in the elected school committee, you're going to run. And honestly, and we've got like four minutes left. Honestly. Don't count yourself out. I, That's um, what I'm asking. Don't I, count yourself I look out. at what is effective. And, you know, we have lost so many people. And when you get to, um, like, you're older than me, but when you get to a certain age, maturity-wise, mentally, you just don't want to keep spinning your wheels. 
And sometimes you just give up. I've, I talked to Domingos a couple of days ago, and it's like, and everybody's asking, are you going to do it again? He did it three times. And I watched what happened to him. Yeah. Um, but he's still coaching. He's still advocating well, for Mass and Cash. You're still out here. Let me give him some advice. And that is, um, you know, it's tough to lose. I lost many elections before I was elected. I ran for the city council three times before I was elected. I ran for uh, the United States Congress in 1976. I ran for, uh, for mayor, I ran for um, state auditor, and I ran for Congress, again, three times. I don't remember that, and I've known you all this time. Well, <laughs> I'm getting to a point. And I've been elected more than anyone else in the history of Boston to the Boston City Council, at least consecutively. But let me tell you, um, Losing is a humbling experience, and mm -hmm. I know. It can be discouraging. I've, I've won and I lost. But you know what's even more humbling than losing? It's winning. Because once you win and you get the authority, you get the office, you have the weight of the city on your shoulders. Or at least you should mm -hmm. feel that way. You have the responsibility for all of your constituents and people who live outside your district or even mm -hmm. outside your city. I was president of the largest organization of black elected officials in the country, if not the world, when I was president of the National Black Caucus of Local Elected Officials. More than 4,000 elected officials mm. across the country, and I was their president. And that only told me that, you know, responsible for folks outside of Boston, outside mm -hmm. of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And when we got our law passed, on South African divestment, and mm -hmm. we withdrew the $12 million, it was, uh, it was that uh, that set in, in, into motion other cities around the country doing the same the thing. The catalyst. And the economic pressure that that put, brought to bear on the South African government was very instructive. So we now, if we can do it in that case, we can do it in terms of what's happening here in Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, we can use the economic power of the, uh, of People, like-minded people, African-Americans and others who want to make, it, make some changes, we can look at that $4 billion plus budget of the city and use it in, in a very positive direction to address the issue of inequality that we have in the city of Boston and set the example for the rest of the country. Okay. We can do it here in Boston. So really quickly, <laughs> you've got about a minute left. What are you doing now what do you, and how do we support you? Well, I am technically <laughs> retired, yeah, and I'm yeah, enjoying no. the retirement. Uh, I do uh, spend a little time with uh, students at, at Suffolk University where I'm teaching a course on race, politics, uh, and economics in the city of Boston. And, and some interesting students are participating in my class. Uh, but most of all, I'm just uh, reflecting on life mm. and trying to uh, do what I can to encourage others uh, to step up. Like their caller, we only have one caller, but I want to challenge that caller like that caller is trying to challenge us uh, without disagreeing necessarily that there are flaws in our, our system. But I believe that we should invest and believe in the people. It's the people that are going to make the changes. And if the people push hard enough, the mayor and the city council will come around. Okay. And we'll have an elected school committee. The preceding commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to the Boston Neighborhood Network, 
at 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Mass., 02119. Attention WBCALP 102.9 FM. If you would like to arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241 or email us at radio at bnntv.org.